It's April 1st, 2021. We're here in Studio One at Sunset Sound. Happy April Fool's Day to everybody. Yes, thank you. We're all here with studio owner Paul Camerata, studio manager Phil McConnell, and our guest of honor, Mr. Don Randy. Thank sir. you. How thank are you? you? Randy. All right. All right. Good to be here. Golf clap. You are a legend in music, sir, from yeah, the Wall of Sound. In my spare sounds. time. <laughs> <laughs> Still playing to this day, your club, yes. The Baked Potato, which sure. we all love, which is right up the street and is opening in two weeks, too. Yes, yeah. Thank God for that. Yeah, it's exciting Thank to God get back for to normal. All that. So how does it feel to come back in this room where so much work was done? Oh, so for much... me, it's, it's marvelous memories, you know. And in the very beginning, because of Tutti Camerata, you know, working for him, I have so many, many stories that are wonderful because he was such a great, great, good man, delightful. And I bought the two pianos, you know, they were in both studios. I went out, he said, go out, and you, you pick out the pianos. Give you the company and, credit card and said, go <laughs> wild. I, went I always wondered where we got those. <laughs> yeah, Paul didn't even know that. I, I told him yesterday. Two Steinways, no, yeah. No. Where'd you buy them from? I bought one from Stern, and I think the other one, at that point, became David Abel. I couldn't remember that name. I think the second was from David Abel. Down on Beverly. Yeah. Yes, it's the same store yeah. that Stern was at. Amazing. So when you come in these rooms, you immediately think of Tootie. When I come in here, I think of, of the song that he produced, Tootie produced of, of mine. I had played here, and he came to me, and it's a wonderful story. This is what you call the essence of being a producer, as far as I'm concerned. He knew exactly what he wanted me to do, and he told me. He says, Don... I think it's time for a Latin or a Mexican-feeling song now, this time of the year, this whatever it is. And I'm looking, and I said, I, I, don't, I don't play any of that. He says, I'm going to give you, he gave me five mariachi albums. He says, listen to this music and come up with a, a pop version of this. I said, okay, and as I'm walking out of the door, he says, think of a song that you can play if you, anybody can play with one finger. And maybe think of Dwayne Eddy, because he knew who Dwayne was, the king of twang. And I'm walking out the door, and I said, what is he talking about? And I got it. So to this very day, whenever we play the song, I tell that story. And then, of course, I play the song with one finger, because you can play it with one finger. But that was a song that has now got 42 different versions of that. And I got to write it. And he knew. He knew what he wanted. What a pleasure. What's, what's the name of the song? Mexican Pearls. Ah. Mexican Pearls. <laughs> That's yeah. the album you brought out there. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you, you hear it uh, a lot in elevators. <laughs> elevators. <laughs> department stores. Perfect for departments. And actually, Mexico Airlines used it for a couple of years as their, their theme song. Now, for those that don't know, you were a part of the Wrecking Crew, which wasn't called the Wrecking Crew back no, in those days. It was originally the Wall of Sound. We were studio musicians, yeah. but we did all those Phil Spector dates, so we got known as the Wall of Sound. And then when Brian heard the band, he said, I got to have those guys, and Brian being Brian Wilson, Wilson yeah. you know. And then we ended up doing all those those pet sounds and one of my favorite all-time rock and roll songs, God Only Knows. And wow. Brian's quoted, we got to get some of this stuff on record, because Brian Wilson's quoted in an interview saying he wrote the piano for good vibrations on the tack piano that was in this room. And then it took three months to do that whole song. Right? That's right. And do you remember him working on it on that tack piano? Which I don't remember that, but I'll give you a story of good vibrations we if you want. I would love it. <laughs> we want There's a very it. low organ thing really low that I played with my foot on the foot pedal 
And we had been working for about nine hours at this point, and he let the guys go out. This is at Studio 3 over at Western United. Yeah. And they're all out in the hall, and I'm holding my foot on this thing, and there's baffles around the Hammond B3. So he can't see me, I can't see him, so we're just talking through the talkback. He says, Don, just hold your foot on that thing, and they were working on a vocal part, and I kept doing it over and over, and I hear, I'm falling asleep. I, I literally, I mean, we had been there all day long, over nine hours. And I look, and there's a pillow next to it that you would use to sit on that hard bench that they use for the organ. And I, I wasn't using it. I said, you know what? They said, hold on one second. We're going to start again. I jumped off the organ, and I got the pillow, and I laid it on, on the low note that I was playing. I think it was a, a B flat, a low B flat on the foot pedal. And I laid down on it, and we started again. But he didn't know. He couldn't see me, so he didn't know that... It, I wasn't doing with my foot. My head was on, on the pillow, <laughs> on, on the pedal. The only ones that knew were, was Hal Blaine and a couple other guys that saw me through the middle. But guess what? I fell asleep. Unbelievable. Really? For at least 10 minutes. <laughs> I was out. And all of a sudden I hear, click, click, Don, that was great. Thank you very much. <laughs> huh? What? Well, needless to say, nobody knew that story except us. Till about four years ago, we were, somebody wrote a, a thing about Brian, and then and he asked me for an interview, and I told that story, and then I get a call from Brian. Did that really happen? I said, oh, you're wow. damn right it did. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. Speaking of sleep, you guys work nonstop, multiple sessions every day. You'd be at Capitol from 9 to 12, right? Sunset Sound till 4 p.m., and then go to Gold Star some days. One week, I actually did 26 different dates. Whoa, and I, I, I wrote and one and I wrote uh, uh, four different sessions on in, in that week too. So it was maddening. And I remember years later having a uh, big argument because there was a period like of two or three years in a row, we were talking something to do with our children, and it was getting you know they were getting out of control you know and and and, I, and I'm arguing you know back and forth, and she just looked at me and said, "Well, where the hell were you?" <laughs> and that was the end of the argument. I was I was never home. Wow. I was never. I mean, it was day and night, day and night. You know. Was it difficult to adapt, and not just you, but for the band to go to these different sessions and the different styles of music, different artists, different everything? I think that's why we we did work so much because, you know, there, as 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 much work as I did, there was enough work for seven other piano players, and there was seven other piano players. There was Al Delori, Mike Rubini. Uh, Ray Johnson, Plas Johnson's brother in the very beginning. Uh, Leon Rex Russell came in later on. Larry Nectel, Al Delory was there. I mean, there was, and everybody worked. Wow. You know, and, and a lot of the guys, well, when you work for Phil, Phil Spector, there was four or five piano players at the same time. There was four or five guitars. Wow. That was what became the wall of sound. Yeah. He wanted all that cacophony of sound in, in one room. Incredible. What did, um, you know, you were telling us earlier about the pay. You know, initially, you come from the jazz world and right. you're paying on pop, rock, rock albums, everything albums, actually. Sure. When did you guys start getting unionized? Through Phil Spector? Through Phil Spector. Right in the very beginning, we started with Phil and then Brian, and a lot of the majors weren't, you know. 
they, they would get away from doing it. And then finally they had to, everybody had to get with the program because they saw independent producers, which was what they were doing, were, were willing to pay that. Why shouldn't they better get it, start doing it right, you know? And it, it took place. That's when we started getting pension fund and all of that. We, we never had hospitalization, you know, until then. And you said that sometimes a gentleman would show up with a briefcase and just dish out some cash. Oh to yeah, you. that was good old Motown, <laughs> right here, right <laughs> oh, in this sunset? room. Oh yeah, right. They tried that here. Right, right here. That happened. That's when Motown first came out from Detroit. Yeah. This was one of the first sessions they did. Was right here. Ernie Freeman was the arranger. The singer was Tony Martin, famous, famous actor yeah. singer, and. Uh, at the end of the date, Hal Davis opens up, or I think that was his name, opens up a briefcase full of cash, and he starts to pay. I said, wait a second, you can't do that. He said, well, that's the way we do it in Detroit. I said, well, you're not in Detroit anymore. And right at that door, right there. Right there. And the next thing I know is these two big arms come around me, and it's James Jamerson, one of the greatest bass players of all time, and he kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because those guys never had a union all the Funk Brothers, all those guys, they got paid nothing. $50 or $100, no residuals. No you know. residuals, no compensation. Later. No. Wow. Not nice. Yeah, horrible. You guys were really cooking, though, then when the wall sure, found. Sure. And the, you know, music changed. You, you know, we were so lucky to have been able to make those hit records in a row. The music was good. The artists were great. You know, the production was great. And if you become the guys that are making the hit records, well, you, you better get those guys because we want to get a hit record. We became good luck, you know. Yeah. And it worked. It worked for so many producers, so many different artists. Phil and I were talking yesterday uh, in the main office here, and I was asking him, I, I said, I wonder if Don even cared if a song was a hit because your pay didn't change. And I loved it. You wanted it to be a oh, hit. Oh, are you kidding I, 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 a lot of the guys hated rock and roll. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and they would tell you they did, they could care less about it. I love to be pull up at a, a light and, and have my radio on. And, the, gee, I played on that. Yeah, I was proud of that. You know, even if I was just doing, you know, me and Leon doing the same thing for for 10 hours. and uh, But it was us. You know, it wasn't somebody else. It was us that did that. You know, the harpsichord solo... I'll tell you a fun story. I walk into uh, Capitol Records. Uh, Nick Vinay is the producer. He said, I heard this band up in Topanga. They're called the Stone Ponies. You, you will not believe them, this little chick singer, Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. I said, okay, and I, I get there, and I walk in, and there's this giant harpsichord, and I'm looking around. <laughs> Who's going to play that? You know. And, and uh, Nick says, you, that's, that's you. You're going to play that. <laughs> And now I'm figuring some kind of Bach thing is going to be written out for yeah. me, and I'm going to be up the creek without a paddle. <laughs> and I'm panicked, really. And and I'm waiting for the music, and I, f I forget who wrote the chart. I think it might have been Jimmy Bond, the bass player, great bass player, who did a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> and on the chart is chords, and it says, rock and roll Bach style. Rock and <laughs> roll Bach style. style. <laughs> That's exactly what it said on the part. Uh, and that's how I, years and years later, I, get, I would get calls. It's till this very day from some school that's a college or something that's doing, you know, a class and arranging or on different classical instruments. And they'll ask me, how hard was that part? They think it was all written out. It wasn't. It was all just 
ad lib. It was really improvised. Like, That's it. Yeah. All totally improvised. Who was wow. all in the Stone Ponies? Don Henley? I think. Yes. No, yeah. I think Don, no, no. no. Uh, from the sure? Eagles. Mm. You sure uh, Glenn, Glenn Fry and Don Henley? Because they originally Stone they were. Stone Ponies? No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One, or, no. one or two of them became. They, the, uh, her. Uh, I remember. We can look it up, but. Uh, because they did that record I, here. Yeah, but it was those guys came later. They yeah, were, they were still. Uh, well, who were the who were the guys? Glenn Fry's from Detroit, and Henley's okay, from yeah. Texas, and they weren't out here that early. That was because. Uh, well, she, she had right. two guys though that, that yeah, did, did yeah. those and those finger them, picking. One of them was her bass player for many years in one of the earlier bands before the uh, before Don and. Uh, Wasn't and, he the producer? No. Yeah. But there, there was another guy that, that played acoustic guitar, and I can't remember his name. Wait, we but can those, find out. Why don't yeah, you guys Google talk? I, I was blown it. away Phil's by, rock by and roll her guitar players. I mean, I had no, they didn't need the studio guys. They really didn't. The, those two guys did it, and, and Nick knew that. They were, they were wonderful, the intonation, but they would put those finger picks on oh, okay. and play that way, and I hadn't, I hadn't seen that in, in, a, in a studio session. It just blew me away. And she was delightful. She was like a dirty little kid out of the street. Linda? <laughs> yeah. She was a sweetheart right from day one. Talk about a singer. She could sustain oh, for uh, two days. We went to see a, a, the, note. a, a thing about her. Uh, uh, there's a, a number of, uh, uh, I guess you would call it dramatic life experiences with Linda Ronstadt, <laughs> you know? Okay. And she doesn't breathe. Bobby Kimmel and Kenny, you go. and Kenny Edwards. Oh, Kenny Edwards was. was her bass player for for many years. But Bobby Kimmel was uh, uh, yeah the guitarist. Guitar player. Yeah, he he was wonderful. But uh, um, you you know that that there were so many great musicians that really I always felt shouldn't have been replaced. But the guy the producers didn't want to take a chance. A lot of times they wanted, especially the major guys. The independent producers had time and they had budget. The guys like David Axelrod at Capitol, Nick at Capitol, uh, all, all these guys, Jimmy Bowen, these different places, Dick Glasser, they were, had a budget. They had a three-hour budget. They had to get three or four songs in three hours. Oh, had to get in, get Whoa. out. You know, and, and, and just to have that budget. So that, that was the, you know, and luckily they were very good and, and especially some of them at picking material. They know the the that was called uh, A and R man was our you know artist relations you know they know how to pick the songs for these people, that's gone way by the wayside you know, yeah. that that doesn't happen too much anymore. When was the first time you met Phil Spector? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Where was it? Gold Star? No, it was it was before Gold Star. He came and saw me playing at a club called Sherry's on the Sunset Strip. He came in with Steve Douglas, who was his contractor in sax. Steve was the, we used to call him Teenage Staff. He, he, Steve, he played all those raunchy sax solos on those records. He was great, a good guy. He was a very close friend of mine. And uh, um, next thing I know, I get a call, do you want to play on a record date? Wow. So he got your number that night. And I do. Did he have sunglasses on? At, it was at Gold Star. And it was the first time I met this drummer called Hal Blaine. And that was his first time working for Phil and my my friend. I think it was uh, he's a rebel. So it was the first time for both of you working yes, with yeah, Phil. Yes, yeah, Phil. Yep. Wow. 
historic. What was yeah. his process in the studio? Was he his process? working with, was the engineer doing a lot of work or was he there well, for every little part? Most of the time I, that I, I were, well, I guess it was Larry Levine was the engineer at Gold Star. Yeah. And you got to remember, it was mono. How did he get all that sound mono. on one track? On one track. No overdubbing. No. And no. Uh, we went at it. And uh, the the echo chamber at Gold Star was, was the, the magic. The draw. The... But he also ran tape echo. <laughs> he was one of the first guys that was into that, you know, let that keep going too. And uh, 15 IPS, what can I tell you, you know? Um, later on, we did the Ronettes, He's a Rebel. I think that was the Ronettes, or Be My Baby, that's what it was, Be My Baby. And we had worked on it for all day long. And finally, we knew, okay, Phil says, come on in, guys, we got it. Tommy Tedesco, all the guys, they're packing up the guitars ready to go, and we're listening in the booth. And you just, as you're listening back, you know, this is number one, Stone Cold. I knew. I mean, it, there's no way this is not going to be a monster hit. Yeah. And then at the very end of the thing, you hear, oh, shit. Guess what? What? Record button was left on and erased the whole. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> when they were doing playback? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Oh, my. stuff can happen. <laughs> they had to recut it. And then we had to go back in for another two hours. And guys were pissed. Howard Roberts hated it. Oh, Howard was always, he hated rock and roll. And he hated, you know, he would do it. He, told, he walked out on a date one time and told Phil Spector to shove it. He says, if you, and Phil knew the guitar. That's, he did know. He knew the guitar probably better than any producer I've ever seen. Lee Hazelwood was another one mm -hmm. who Phil had worked for before that. But he knew how to get stuff. I want you to do it on the fifth fret. I want you to do it this way. Can you put a capo on? So when he used those five guitars or four guitars, everybody, there was a reason, you know. But uh, Howard just told him, he says, I can't, I've been playing this for nine hours already. My hands are, are <laughs> cramped. And he walked out. He said, that's it. Picked up his amplifier, you know, those little fenders that they used to have. Walked yeah. out of the day. Can't take it. <laughs> Was his uh, process also the one session, one song? He wouldn't. He would yeah, work no, on one no. song. He was. You see that that was the difference between being independent. Uh, the only time we did more than one song in sessions was when we did the biggest album Phil Spector ever did. Do you know which one? Do you think that might be? No. It's called the Christmas album. <laughs> The Christmas album. That Chris I, have a, I have a copy of that. that it's, yeah. it's probably one yeah. of the greatest Christmas albums because it's everybody's. So good. It is so good. <laughs> and you know something? It's like an annuity. Yeah. Every year, it sells all over yeah. again. It sells all At over Christmas. again. Yeah. <laughs> that Christmas album was. It's got the Ronettes on it, the Crystals, Darlene Love, yeah. Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, it's amazing. All, all those girl, all those girl groups that he did yeah, doing yes. the classic uh, Christmas songs, you yeah. know, just uh, great stuff. Yeah, Wall of Sound, Christmas. Wall of Sound. That's right. It's and people to this. I mean, they finally came out with it on a CD. Yeah. It took them forever to do it, but finally. Yeah, you know, I have both versions. Because <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't move my turntable into the other room where. They, know, they, on, I think on White Christmas you hear Darlene saying, "I'm sitting here in sunny California, yeah. you know, and yeah. with the palm trees." <laughs> Back to that, be my baby though. The drums on that, oh, the boom. Well, 
when I, I'll do a, a, some classes, and I, I, we do it. It was Hal's birthday before he passed away. Two weeks before he passed away, it was his 90th birthday. And every drummer that you can imagine was at the Baked Potato. We had a, a party for him. Uh-huh. It was one of the most, one of my favorite nights of all time. And then Kelton walks in with Charlie Watts, Sir Charlie Watts. Wow. And then, you know, Danny was there, Danny Carey's there, uh, uh, the guy from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Chad Smith. Uh, Chad, every, everybody was there. Wow. You know, and, and had I started, I had my band. I had, uh, I forget who was playing. Uh, David Goodstein was playing drums with me that night. And uh, um, had I started, everybody wanted to play. And I said, if I do that, this, is, this will be, it'll, it'll be ridiculous. So I just said, this is the way we're going to do it. The only one we got up to play, and he, he didn't want to do it, was Hal. We got Hal up to play. And he played to uh, and my daughter and Justin. We did uh, uh, Crackling Rosie, the Neil Diamond song. Yeah. And then we did uh, These Boots Are Made For Walking. Uh, for, uh, no, we did, uh, uh, yeah, that one, we did that Nancy song. Both my kids, Leah and Justin, both sang on those. So that was kind of fun. Wow. But that was an interesting night. Back to the session players, were you guys under any like NDA, non-disclosure, or you, were you playing on people's, like the monkeys, for instance? Did you guys have to like sign no, contracts you, to not you talk know about how that anything? was? They just didn't put our names on the cover. The friends that started to do that was Phil Spector and Brian Wilson. And then you never, you know, those old albums, you never saw There's anybody's no name. There's no credits, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then that also forced the majors to start doing that, you know. Mm. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, in that in today's market, though, everyone would run and say, "Oh, we were playing on that and sue you and what, what, what run to the, the TMZ the night, or something." And yeah, uh, Linda Ronstadt came out with a, uh, Linda's greatest hits, and I forget the guy what's his name that was producing a, a lot of her stuff at that later point. Or earlier later later, was, later later was Peter Asher. Yeah, Peter Asher. Yeah. She th- on every track that she did in, in those things. The back of the cover, each track, she thanks all the musicians for each. Individual song. Individual oh, song. Nice. What a delightful thing to do. Yeah. But, and, 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 and with a thank you. you and know. that started to become a thing, too. Yes, because yes. Because more and more it people did. started to do that. Sure. Because they were using so many different people on the records that they were giving, you know, it might be the same lineup, but the different drummer and somebody yes, else sure. on percussion. And they'd, sure. they'd notate that. But uh, that started to become a thing, you know, so. D- that, that Hal Blaine thing that you were talking about, boom, 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 boom. It's got to be the simplest drum lick ever. And if you break it down, it's a dotted quarter musically, an eighth note and another quarter and another quarter. Yeah. And that's all it is. It's nothing complicated, but that, that, that exact lick, I think we must have played it at least 200 times on different people's records that became hits. Yep. And you know who I saw it later in life, I think, and just Kenny Aronoff, who you oh, know Kenny as well. Oh, Kenny is great. Everybody here. You know. He went to the same music school, Jacob School of Music, Indiana University, but in Jack and Diane, the John Mellencamp song, yes. he does that same exact thing. Oh, sure, sure. Do you remember that? Off and he'll, and he'll, he'll tell it to you. Kenny's great. You know, <laughs> he'll say, that's a Hal Blaine lick. He doesn't give a shit. You know? <laughs> that's it, it's, awesome. It's, it, Hal, Hal had a, you know what Hal did that was different than most of the drummers in those days? He would hear tonality, the, the key the songs were in, or he'd hear some, something from a vocalist, and out would come the drum key. And he'd start bing, 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 tuning the drum drums key. to make it more sociable for what was going on. Very clever. Yeah. You know? hmm. Master. What did, uh, how did you first meet Brian Wilson? 
I got a call for the date, you know. I was just one of the, one of the guys, and he and I hit, hit it off right away for some unknown reason. We did, you know, it was just like a, an immediate friendship. As a matter of fact, uh, um, there's a, a thing that's out, uh, The Making of Pet Sounds. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a scene between Brian and I going back and forth, arguing with each other on... on uh, what is it? God only knows. There's a section that goes bump, 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 it up, ba da 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 da. And he had it really legato, ba da, ba da da da. And it wasn't working. It was driving him crazy. And I said, Brian, do it short. He says, No, no, it'll never work. Do I said, Do it staccato. Do it really. That that's going to work. And you see, you hear us going back and forth. And sure enough, that's the way it ended up. And he did give me credit for it. That's good. You got your way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was really neat. It's a, I had forgotten completely about it, you know. Was Pet Sounds the first session you worked on with him then, that album? Um, or God Only Knows? Um, I very well likely could be. Um, gee, you know, it's, it's a little hard to remember. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you an Don't interesting one, though, is, is uh, Help Me Rhonda. We did it. And I, it was the first time, this was done at another studio called TTG. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Still right up there. Ami, Ami Hadani. Ami Hadani. Yeah. And, and we did that one there. For, for, I guess, for, I don't know why, but that's where we did it. And everything was written. Everything was out. It was written, you know. And I look at him looking and I said, that's unusual. That we don't have to work anything out, you know. <laughs> and we played through it one time and I said, oh, my God. This it's magic. This is magic. And of course it was. It became a number one record for them. 20 years later, I go to see Leon Russell at something, and, and the I guess that new album had come out called Smile, I think, or one of the new things where they put a collection of, of, of the Beach Boys stuff in. Yeah, they did that here, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, Leon says, you know, I played on Help Me Rhonda. I said, hell, you did. I said, that was me playing on it. He says, no, 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 I played on it. And he starts to laugh. I said, what are you talking about? You weren't there. You became a big star at that point when we did that again. You were already... <laughs> he says, I did it before. I said, what are you talking about? He says, we recorded it, and his father hated it. Oh, really? And it went on the shelf. Murray. Murray. Yeah. And wow. after Murray had passed away, came right back out. We, we read it at... And so on a couple of the albums, there's two versions. One's Leon's and one's mine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you can hear them both. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was, but yours was the hit. The hit. Yeah, yeah I got the hit. <laughs> <laughs> was Murray in the studio with you guys all the time? I never saw Murray. Really? I never was there. When I came, Murray, that was already. Were you in the, you know, Carol, they made her part, and Hal in Love and Mercy. Was there a character in that uh, kind of resembling some people? Yeah, I guess John Cusack how, film. What a waste! Of, you know, I I got invited to go to the premiere of that. My wife and I went, and we sat through it. You know, and it was really more about his wife's story than than his story, as far as I was concerned. Which is fine. Melinda's yeah. a sweetheart. I, I get along great with Melinda, but I, I I wanted more music. You know, there was so much more music that could have been done, yeah. and uh, it was it was okay. You know what it was there's so many that era had such such great great songs and what about all of you know the things that get neglected with all those great folk rock bands that were around judy hensky uh, uh what's where the association came out of that whole thing 
And and all those bands were had good material. They were good songs. Mamas and Papas, you know. They they all they were good. You good played with them as well, didn't you? I did or one Mama one Cass. Of, yeah, I, I did a, I did Mama Cass's solo album. Okay, yeah. Later on, but Larry Nectel did most of the Mamas and Papas for Bones Bones Howe. It was just his birthday last week. Mm. Oh, yeah. Wow. He's getting up there. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, you know, this studio, Sunset Sound, was started by Paul's father, Tutti Camerata. What's some of your favorite uh, uh, trackings with him that you've done? Well, of course, Mexican Pearls was is, is my, that whole album was so much fun doing. But uh, um, the, the uh, Jesus, uh, Jungle Book was a, a lot of fun to do. Uh, um, so many <laughs> different things that we, that Tutti that would come up with. I forget there were well the ones that Tootie didn't do. I mean, doing Love here was unbelievable. When when Love recorded here, and I, why they picked me to be the piano player, I'll yeah, never know. Several we played on Love. That yeah, album? Yeah. we were just talking about that. Yeah. They were supposed to be the next doors, or they yeah. were the doors before the That's doors. Right, they were right, the doors before the doors. Yeah. Right here, right, right where yeah. we're sitting. <laughs> wow! And they were bouncing off the walls pretty good, you know. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are cult records. Yeah. I'm uh, a little younger than these guys, but they teach me about all the great records that were done in here. And then we were talking, we do a Sunset Sound album of the week, and Phil yeah. told me to put up Love, and then I started listening yes. to it, and it was incredible. Great. Oh, it is incredible. And and you know you know what? Who wrote their number, the biggest hit they ever had? I don't. My Little Black Book? I got out my little black book. But doo -doo -doo. Yeah. That was their... No, go ahead. Burt Backright. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> you knew yeah. that, didn't you? That's Burt Backright? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Most people... Are, uh, yeah, no, most people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't figure that. that yeah. uh, yeah. Wow. Wouldn't connect him with that. Yeah. Nope. Wow. And, and uh, just another thing, you remember the uh, the the rhythm guitarist in, in that band, uh, Brian McLean, was either a stepbrother or a half-brother to Maria McKee, who was in Lone Justice. Really? Yeah. Oh, a little tidbit you yeah, got. I so like that. Yeah. Like that too. So, uh, <laughs> second, a second generation. Or wow. Sibling. Uh, yeah. Recording. Because Lone McKee? Justice did their their first album here in studio too with yeah. uh, Jimmy Iovine. I think it was Jimmy. I think I it mean. was Jimmy. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. That, that's it, isn't that? that I, when yeah, I, when so you I start saw connecting things like that, that no, you know, that doesn't make sense. From the 60s <laughs> with bands from the from the 70s and yeah. 80s, you know, with the that relationship. So, sure, just, uh, so wow. we did. You know, what at one time we had this this studio book for three weeks, and every day for three weeks we did different bands. We would did sound alikes for a company called Seaberg Music. They had all the jukeboxes. And they couldn't afford to pay the royalties to the artist doing an original. So we came in and made sound-alikes. Whoa. And <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was copies. But we wrote a lot of original songs in that manner. So that was got, all the guys in the bands, everybody was writing songs. And I got paid $75 in arrangement. And some days we would do 14 sides in one 14 day. in a day? And, and wow. in and out. And we did it all right here in this studio, that great piano, the great Steinway. Now, this studio was the only studio at Sunset Sound until 1967. Then Studio 2 was built. Did you move yes. over to that room uh, and do a lot uh, of work? On, on occasion, on occasion. Glenn Campbell's last recording was at Studio 2, and you played on that, correct? No. You didn't? No, I didn't. That's Al Delory. Okay, I thought you were. He was the... producing him and, and playing. I, I, 
all the dates I did with Glenn, I never worked on one of at one of his own dates because Al did it. He would play piano or, or and produce. Later in life, though, you didn't play on uh, his one of his latest no. Re- records. No, no, I just never did. Uh, oh, well, I did. I, I should take that back. The very last thing he did, which became an, a hit, "I'm Not Going to Miss You," the, yeah. from from the the end of the movie. As a matter of fact, the end of the movie. I don't know if, if you if, if you watch it, it goes from Glenn to me and to Hal and back to Glenn and I. And and I, I get choked up every time I talk, but he didn't know who the hell I was. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, and there he is just playing and singing his ass off. And I'm looking over there, and I, and, and there's no there's no re what why you know why does this happen to happen you know. But afterwards, I tried. We were talking. I told him because he was one of the funniest people I've ever known, and just, just it was all gone. You know, such a tough way. You know, Alzheimer's is not nice. It's yeah, not nice. incredible it's that he could shame. still play so well. Oh yeah, I mean, and they did that whole, and and how courageous is what, what it was of them to show that last whole last year, of the, te- the you can actually see the de- deterioration. And there's a lot of stuff that they couldn't put in there because it was, he got a, a, a bit violent too on occasion, you know, and, and it, it just takes over and how it involved the family so much, you know, and it, both his daughter and son, his son's a hell of a drummer and his daughter's a great singer, you know. Yeah. Did you ever meet Glenn Campbell? Yeah. You did at yeah. Sound Factory? Yeah. And obviously you did a bunch of times. Yeah, he was here on, when he was doing the last couple of records before he Glenn was, was just an amazing... <laughs> yeah, and you want? Do you want to know something that most people don't know? Of there was a, uh, sessions done at Gold Star B in the back studio of Gold Star. That we, Leon and I and Hal and a whole bunch of we would do two for twenty five, two songs for twenty five dollars. But you had to do it in an hour or to an hour and a half. What, and it was sing, singer, singer, songwriter, singers that had to come in and get a demo. Oh wow! So we would come in and do these <laughs> demos. Yeah. If, and and we would d- knock off, you know, a whole bunch of them in one day, you know. And would you believe that Glenn Campbell would get, first of all, he couldn't read a note, and he would figure it out before any of us did to start. But not only that, he sang, I'd say, 70% of those songs for the songwriters. Wow. Those demos were better than, than some of the records that he, that he sang on. I wonder where those uh, tapes are. Somebody's oh, yeah. got to yeah. have them. I, I asked his wife, Hunter's I asked Glenn's yeah. wife, uh, that they're, they're, they got to be around. Somebody's got to have be, them. You know? That'd be incredible. There's got to be a ton oh, yeah. of them. And he was so... He, I did a, a date for Lee Hazelwood one time with Glenn Campbell, Billy Strange, uh, Jerry Reed, and Buddy Emmons, four of the greatest guitar players of, of you know, country, but they were just incredible. And Buddy Emmons playing steel was just, I mean, he was just amazing. What, what a musician, you know, and, and competency. And, and those guys, it was one of the, fun, I thought I was going to go to the hospital from all the hillbilly jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I have never, I mean, they started, it was for Lee Hazelwood. I, I forget the artist, it could have been Susie Jane Holcomb, I think. The date started at 8 o'clock, and I think the first tune we started to play was about a quarter after 10 because they kept on, you remember this? Do you remember when this happened? And Jerry Reed is a monster, you know, and he's one of the funniest people. And then, of course, Glenn. 
And Billy, you know, it was a bunch of, you know, the corn shuckers. You know? mm-hmm. Everybody in stitches, huh? You know, and then Buddy Emmons, just to me, that was, you know, I, I knew that all the other guys, but just to watch Buddy, what a thrill, what a thrill. Just to, have to, to, just to be part of that. In those days, uh, and I kind of semi-asked this question, but could you recognize a hit right off the bat when you heard it? No. You didn't no, know if it was no, going to go A lot number of one. stuff we did and a lot of Brian stuff we did. Um, I, I must say I, I, I could recognize a hit when Jimmy Bowen did a lot of stuff too because of the songs, not so much the artist, but uh, we did, oh, you know who, we, uh, Dorsey Burnett, who I, he produced a couple of artists here that I, that I arranged for. One of them was Burl Davis, who was a great, great singer. Uh, um, uh, one of the guys at Capitol was dating her after she had, she was married to a very famous disc jockey by the name of Peter Potter. He had a television show years ago. The first, is it a hit, bing, or is it a miss? Really, <laughs> <laughs> and <I> go boom, <laughs> but it, it was a show that was on, and they, they got divorced, and she became a she. There was three women: her, uh, Jane Russell, and somebody else, that had a trio that worked all over the all over the lounges in Vegas, and in the Tahoe. They were wonderful, great, wow. three great, marvelous singers, really great. So uh, um, I got to do her. We did uh, the first arrangement I did for a band. I had done other stuff. But it was the first time with Dorsey Burnett producing, and uh, the trumpet players decided to get me, and then we kept they kept making the same mistakes, and I'm saying, did I? And then then they just kept right on going, and we did it again, and they made the same mistake at the same place, and I walked over and I said, and then they started to laugh, (laughs) (laughs) you bastards. Really? <laughs> we'll show you. Oh, you want to be an arranger now? <laughs> <laughs> All these wonderful guys, you know, that you were. And they were such wonderful musicians, the musicianship, from the horn players to the string players, you know. Everybody had a job to do, and they did it. And most of the string players were, you know, symphony players. They, this was a bit beneath them to play rock and roll, but they didn't turn it down because the, the paycheck was nice, you know. In the beginning, it wasn't so nice, and then it became nice. The that fo- whole union thing is... is that helped inter- a lot, huh? Oh, it, oh sure. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, changed, changed it was like $62 or $65 for a three-hour session. And then if you were in the rhythm section, you got an extra $15 if you were tracking. Wow. $15 a side. That was all negotiated on the unions? So on the union thing, so that if you were making tracks, yeah, you got, so ours became $95 or whatever it was, you got extra money because you were in the rhythm section. Wow. You were tracking and then they did what was called sweetening. They sweetened the tracks with the horns or the strings. So we all get together to, to get a hospital, a better hospital plan for the musicians and guess what they got rid of? Tracking. They got a $5 raise and we all lost $30 or whatever it was. <laughs> and forget, we never got a hospital plan. <laughs> Bummer. That was the end of tracking. The flip side of that question then would be, was there ever a hit song that you thought was going to go to number one and you're like, this is a golden, and then it just flopped? Well. And if you remember the name, that'd be interesting. No, I, I wouldn't, you know. Something um, you were really proud of playing on, you really, it was a great song, track, well, and then it didn't do too well. Does that happen all the time? Of, one of my favorite songs that I got to do because it was an overdub. 
called Crackling Rosie for Neil Diamond. And Hal and I had to come in and fix some parts. I don't know who did the original, but Neil wasn't happy with what it was. So we came in, we're putting on another piano part, and, and Hal's fixing a drum part. And it's just rhythm section. And as we finish, I said, boy, I know exactly what to do with this song. And that's all I said to Hal, you know. And Hal goes in the booth, and I think the producer was Tommy Catalano. I think that was who produced Neil. And Tommy comes out with Neil and says, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said, he said, why don't you go write the chart? I said, really? <laughs> wow. And I, got, and I ended up doing that chart, Crackling Rosie. Oh. That's my chart. That's a big record. And you know what? That was his first number one record. <laughs> first number one. Did, did you record with him at his place over in West Hollywood? The, no, this was at... Angel Studio? No, Armin Steiner. Oh, okay. Uh, Sound Labs. Well, sounds, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm. This, we, we did that there. All right. That was, a, that was a, a really interesting thing, you know, for me. And it was, the, you know, I can say I, I, I arranged the number one record, so how about that? Yeah. <laughs> and it happened just because of my big mouth, you know, saying something to Hal, <laughs> and Hal went in and so, told him, you know, Don knows what to do. When did the Wrecking Crew kind of, well, first off, the Wrecking Crew is from the term from Hal Blaine. It yeah, kind of came in the a, 90s. He wrote a book, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we never were wrecking anything really, but we changed the style because in the very beginning, everybody was, it was the suit and tie guys, you know. They, 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 were, they were the studio guys. Yeah. You know, they showed up. Barney Kessel would show up, always dressed very neatly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, those guys were the top musicians, and all of a sudden, here we came, and there was no smoking in those days, and everybody smoked, you know. And, and it was a completely different attitude. It was looser. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't care if a producer, I mean, we did some outrageous things to producers that they, they, if they, they're turning over in the grave, half of them, you know. <laughs> but, because they, we, we knew how to work. Tommy Tedesco, he was the king of it. I mean, he, if, you, if you were taking advantage... Watch out, you know, because he could work you over and you never knew it. And we'd be peeing in our pants laughing because he went to work. <laughs> we just shut up. <laughs> Perfect example. Jimmy Haskell. We're working for Dick Glasser. I forget who the artist was. And he's the producer. And Jimmy, Jimmy is a marvelous arranger. And, and uh, he, <laughs> it's 10 minutes to 3. The date's over at 3. Dick Glasser in the booth says, guys, that was great. We got it. Thank you. Jimmy Haskell said, no, let's do one more. <laughs> no, 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 we got it, Jimmy. We got it. No, no, let, let's do one more. We have time, right? So he, he says, okay, guys, let, let's do one more. Tommy Tedesco. Jimmy, when I get to bar 12, do you want me to do that same thing on the guitar? I remember you just said something. You know, no, no, keep doing the same now, do you want it on the same guitar? Maybe you make, if we're going to do another take, let me switch guitar. He goes to work till his three minutes left. <laughs> and guess Time's what? Up. We never played another note. Dick Glass is like, go home. <laughs> 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 and, you know, and here we are. We're the Hal and I were dying. I mean, I was biting my lip. I made my lip bleed. It was so funny. It was because we knew it was, it was over, you know. But it was, it was as outrageous as, as some of the things we did. Some of these guys really deserved it, you know. And, and uh, 
Another Jimmy Haskell story, one of my favorite stories. We get a call from Jimmy to this new singer, and it's Hal Blaine, Leland Sklar, James Burton, uh, a guy by the name of Michael Hayes, another guitar player, and myself, and Hal, I think I mentioned. <laughs> and the date starts at 10 o'clock in the morning, and we're all there, you know, at quarter to 10, waiting to go. Mm-hmm. 10 o'clock, there's no music, there's no nothing, we're just sitting around. Jimmy Haskell, I'm working on the song, we'll be right out. 10.30 comes, 11.30 comes. Oh, jeez. No song. Finally, it's a quarter to one. We haven't played a note yet. Jimmy says, you guys, it, 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 we're having a tough time. Just go have lunch, come back at 2 o'clock. So we go out. We all go. We were on, uh, I forget, Cherokee Studios. Don Costa used to own that one on Fairfax. Um, and we go have uh, lunch right across the street. It was a restaurant. We come back at 2 o'clock. Leland and I are talking. We're there. He says, do you think we're ever going to get a song? He says, I don't know. You know 2.30 comes. Still no, not ready. N- not, no, no music. Jimmy comes out with the singer. Finally, we see the singer. This guy's about 6'7". Good-looking guy. And they come out, and he's just checking something at the piano, and then he goes back in the studio again. We didn't, nothing. Finally, it's a quarter to four. And Jimmy comes back out. He says, guys, it, it looks like we're not going to have to be able to do a date today. It's just not working out. And Leland turns around and looks at Jimmy and says, you know, Jimmy, when we started this date, I was clean shaven. <laughs> Good one. And I, that was it. He made my day. Yeah. <laughs> well, shaven. you know you know what Leland looks like, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Have yeah. you seen him recently? <laughs> yeah, beard down there. That beard down that was it. I, I'll never forget that. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do in sessions that, you know, if you couldn't get it done, just rebook another day? That was very rare. Yeah? Very rare. You know, sometimes we came back and redid something. You know, you know that's interesting that you bring it up. In the very beginning, in the, when we first started doing that, you could almost see songs that you knew you were going to be doing with different artists. And you would get cover records where somebody would cover somebody else's thing, and, and the record companies would actually get in a little competition who was going to get the number one record or who was going to get... And it was a competitive, and that made more work for us because yeah. you would do a record with Dean Martin and somebody, Bobby Darren did this, Sammy did it or something like that. They'd all cover each other's stuff. You know, so many, so many things like that would happen, and... We uh, uh, an interesting story on on uh, something stupid. There's on the beginning of that song. There's a guitar lick, and it's a, a story that we all knew, and, and it was Glenn Campbell and Al, Cade, Al Casey, and it was for Frank Sinatra and Nancy. I think that's the song. I can't remember which song it was. I could be I could be ma- making a mistake, but. Glenn was having a problem because he didn't read. And, and Frank said, no, no, that, that's, that, that's, not, that, that's not it. And Al Casey said, I played on the demo of that for the composer. He says, you want me to play it? And Glenn said, well, you sure. You go ahead and play it if you did it. You know, and nobody ever knew. It's, it's Al Casey that plays the oh, thing. Everybody cool. always thought it was Glenn. You know? 
So it, it, those things would happen, stuff like that. You also um, played a lot of Motown. You played at ABC for yeah, Jackson ABC 5. For Jackson 5. Did that you guys do that at Motown West out here, or was that in... No, that was at a studio on Cumston Avenue off Lancashire Boulevard mm-hmm. called Amigo. Oh, oh how about that <laughs> one? <laughs> Warner Brothers Studio. Yeah, and, and they had, that was a good little studio, actually. Did you ever get to go in there at all? Yeah, or? I used to deliver gear there all the time when I worked at Studio Instrument. Yeah. and I I grew up uh, on Compton Street on the other side of Lancashire. Oh, really? So I was just I was about two blocks yeah. west of and where that's Amigo before, was. And, and in those days, there weren't that many dealerships there. There was a, you know one car dealer. Yeah. Now it's you know block. No, there block. was there was a Ford dealer and a Chevy dealer yeah. on on the, um, the either two side. corners yeah. of Lancashire. But now they're huge. They were. They're just tiny little showrooms then. But, yeah, I grew up right in that neighborhood. We did, uh, Kevin Eggers was a producer from New York who would come out and, and do stuff. And uh, um, we did uh, a guy by the name of Towns Van Zant. Yes. The two albums. Waiting there, around to I die. arranged. Yeah. Yeah, he's, you know what? what's said about him so much, and a lot of people, they didn't get the recognition that they should have gotten until after they passed away, you know? Mm-hmm. And he was really really a terrific songwriter and a great singer, you know, of what he did. High, Low, and In Between is my favorite one, you know, that he did. But Towns kind of got lost in the shuffle there till he passed away, and then all of a sudden his albums start to sell, you know. Yeah, people like Emmy Lou Harris and Rodney yes. Crawwell started championing his music, music and made sure. him famous after, after his death. I didn't uh, know you knew that. How did yeah. you know that? Cause, cause I'm not as old as you, but I'm getting up there. <laughs> I've been around a yeah. little while. Oh, so. yeah. You, you know, it's, 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 it, you know, you always wonder, you know, why, 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 you know? Yeah, because I'd never heard of him until yeah. I, you know, started listening to them. Yeah, and then it's got all, all these great songs that they did of his. You he, know, did, some he did, he did, he did drink a lot though. Yeah, Jesus. oh yeah, yeah, pills, yeah. everything. He was from Texas, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. W- one of my favorite albums that I did, uh, w- which I didn't get to play that much of, I'm just doing a lot of company was with Tim Buckley. Tim was a really interesting, you know, slide guitar player. Besides being a good songwriter, you know, yeah. and that, that they were fun dates that we did. Tim Buckley, yeah, we did a Tim Buckley uh, Electra record. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I think it was here. Yeah, yeah. So did back to the story about the twenty five dollar uh, when you would coach people and yeah. have them come in. Was that how you met Glenn that way? No, I had met Glenn on on. on oh, but session. he would still come yeah, in and do that oh, with yeah, you. This okay, is way gotcha. before he became a big star. Gotcha. We we had a used to have a musicians golf tournament, and we we play it down at I forget someplace in Palm Springs, but in those days it was a drink a hole, a drink a hole, and they had a golf cart with a bar. Yeah. The golf cart went around, and I remember the story goes I was I I was in another round, but they say Glenn had passed out. On one of the things, and they were putting around him <laughs> on the <laughs> greens. <laughs> That's funny. So you know, and he could hit the ball a country mile. I mean, Glenn could—he had a great swing and powerful hit. Your dad played golf with him. Yeah, they used to play a lot. Didn't we just find a calendar or something? A bit big. Yeah. So I have a new tenant in the back, and they were my dad's old office, which is a house. So he was up in the attic, kind of looking through what was up there, and. Came down with this uh, 
end table or something he said, can I use it? I said, sure. And he says, well, I found some stuff in the drawer. And I said, well, let me see what it is. So I was looking at it, and I go, oh, my God, it's my dad's calendar from 1973. Wow. And it had, had all his appointments on it. So I'm looking at the appointments, and most of the appointments were golf games. I mean, it was like, <laughs> you know, playing with, uh, you know, Glenn Campbell, Glenn Campbell, uh, Johnny Carson. It Johnny was like Mac uh, Davis. Mac, oh, yeah. Mac Davis. Well, that was like That's one right. of his playing and Bowen. partners. Jimmy Bowen was another and, one that yeah, played yeah, a lot yeah, of it, golf. It was, yeah. it was crazy. I mean, yeah, and I was like, man, he was playing a lot of golf, a lot more than I'm playing. So, anyway. <laughs> but that's wonderful. Yeah. It's it great good. to hear stories like that, you yeah. know, because – they're not only they're not only musical, but they were the guys, you know. Yeah. Oh, I know. Billy Pittman, who is now, uh, did he turn he turned a hundred? I think. Wow. I think Billy just. We I I'm, I hope I I think I'm right. And we all went down for his birthday party in Palm Springs. So everybody was Mitch Holder. All, all the guitar players were there to honor him. And uh, Billy's, you know, he played on all those records. He played on all, and he was really a jazzer. I think Billy actually gave Phil Spector some guitar lessons at one point. Either Billy or Howard did, wow. Howard Roberts or, or Billy. But Billy, you know, we used to call him Dr. Salt because he, he never liked anything. <laughs> never liked anything. <laughs> but he's, he, to this day, he's out there playing golf in Palm Springs. He goes oh out two, goodness. three times a week. Good for him. Yeah, he still plays. Uh, we got to tell the story, though, about the tack piano. Paul told me this a long time ago, but in this room there was a tack piano, and yes. Brian Wilson's in that great interview, and he says, I wrote Good Vibrations on the tack piano. I loved it, the one they had at Sunset Sound. They had a great tack piano. Well, later in the 80s, Prince loved that piano. Yeah, well, it was over it. in Studio 3, and it was living in the hallway, and he discovered I remember it that there. being out in a hallway, come yep. to think of it. Yes. And he dragged yeah. it in the studio, and he started using it, and he used it on a lot of his records. And in the late 80s, one day he comes to my manager then, and he goes, I really love this attack piano. Can I have it? Or can I buy it from you? And uh, so my manager came to me and said, you know, Prince wants to buy the tack piano. And I go, to give it to his father. I go, why? And he goes, he wants to give it to his dad. Right. And I said, really? I said, well, he's been such a good client. Let's just give him the piano. And um, so we don't have it anymore. Prince's <laughs> dad has it. Yeah. But that was the piano. That was the piano on the Doors records. It it's was on a lot of records. A lot, sure. a lot of records. I forget what I played it on. I know I played it on a couple of different yeah. things. Yeah. But uh, um, yeah, that that's nice. But anyway, what a departure for it though to leave here from I, I, I Prince. I did a, an album with the Everlees, mm -hmm. and it was called Bowling Green. Dick Dick Glasser produced it, and they had a pipe organ that they that belonged to uh, um, to to Phil. Mm -hmm. And I have asthma, and it's a, it was a pump organ. Oh, you had to pump. It. And I'm pumping, and I'm pumping, and I'm pumping. <laughs> And I'm, uh, I'm wheezing, you know, and they can't hear it in there. But I'm, you know, and we did it, kept doing it over and over and over. And finally the date ended and I ended up going right to the hospital. Oh, I mean, I, would, I had to go and they had to, you know, resuscitate and put me on saline and calm wow. me down. But uh, it, w it was an interesting, and, and they laughed about it <laughs> forever over that thing. So years later... Phil calls me. He says, "Come to my house. I want to give you the organ." 
I said, you're kidding. He, he says, no, it's been, it's been out there. And I go out to his house. It was sitting out in the rain. and It was, it was like mush. I said, why did you do that? You know, he just stuck it out. It, it couldn't fit in the house. So we put it back out. <laughs> sitting outside? Yeah, just about. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> was it repairable at all or was no, it just garbage? No, no it, it was. I, you know what? Somebody said I should have taken it anyway. He wanted to give it to me. Yeah. I should have just, but it was. It was just trash. Yeah. Mm. We, um, for each guest that comes in, we put up on uh, Twitter and social media the name of the guest, and then we pick two questions out of like hundreds that people put up. Would you want to answer a couple of them? If I can find uh, some here. Uh, Sometimes they're very stupid, like, do you smoke pot? (laughs) (laughs) Did somebody ask you that? That's one of the questions. No, I don't. Okay. (laughs) Would you rather jam with Danny Carey or Buddy Rich? Danny Carey. Oh, really nice. I love that. Brandon, you love that too. Who is the most famous or one of your favorite musicians you have jammed with at your club, The Baked Potato? That's a good question. So, 1970 it opened, right? Yes, yeah. So oh, you're talking boy, that's, 51 that's years. That's really a tough one. You know, it can go on. You know, one of my favorite nights was I had a great bass player by the name of Ed Alton who ended up writing a lot of TV stuff. And Marcus Miller came in just to check us out. And he, he came up to play one tune with us, to sit in with us. And my bass player refused to come back up and play really? after that. So I'm not going to play after Marcus Miller. Are you kidding? And Marcus ended up having to play the whole night with us. And he was so gracious, so cool. And that was one of my favorite nights, Mark. Another night when Freddie Hubbard came in and sat in with us. Uh, you you but, handled that question very well. You could have you could have hurt some feelings or offended somebody <laughs> with oh, the yeah. wrong answer. <laughs> well, I, I tried <laughs> to offend as many. <laughs> One I, night when we used to have a band, a trumpet player by the name of Harry Sweets Edison, who your dad knew real well because mm-hmm. he would use sweets. He was from Ellington's band and from. Uh, 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 New York style trumpet player, but he played out here for years. And he had he owned Sunday nights at the baked potato. And one night I happened to be there, sitting right at the front door next to the doorman. And my my God, as far as I'm concerned, walked in and it was Oscar Peterson. Oh, wow. By himself. And I look at him and I said, Oh my God, it's Oscar. And I jumped up and I introduced myself. He says, Well, where are you sitting? I said, I'm sitting right here. He says, Well, you and I I'll sit with you. So he's sitting next to me, and, and I'm sitting like, this is my favorite pianist of all time. And Sweets is playing, and he sees Oscar, and he says, come on up and play. And Oscar says, no, 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 I'm not going to play. I'm not going to play. Now, this is that Steinway I was telling you about that was midied, yeah. and that's the piano that was in there. It was a great Steinway. And the reason I got that Steinway is because I saw Oscar Peterson playing a Steinway just like that, the Steinway B, at the London House in Chicago. Wow. And I'm sitting next to Oscar. I said, he said, that's a beautiful Steinway you have there. I said, that's there because of you, Oscar. He said, you're kidding. I said, no. I said, I saw you playing at the London House in Chicago. And he's looking at me. He said, you're a baby. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, no. I'm, I, we had a gig in Chicago, and I got to get a chance to come here. So now Sweets tries to get him up again, and he, he doesn't come up. He won't play. And then finally, they take a break, and Sweets comes over, and he did chat for a minute, and then Sweets goes out back with the band, and Oscar's sitting there. I said, Oscar, please, one song that, you know, and I, and I tell, you know, reiterate the story again. 
And he looked at me and says, okay, I'm going to play one song for you. Wow. And he walks over to the piano, and here comes, Sweets comes running, and he says, no, 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 I'm doing this for the owner. <laughs> Just like that, he goes. And he sits, sits down, and he starts to play. And in those days, the room was smoke-filled like crazy. You could hardly <laughs> see, and packed. And you could hear a pin drop the minute he put his hands on the piano. And it was just, and I'm sitting there, and I got tears in my eyes. Oh, my God. But what I didn't know, on the corner of the of the bar, our little bar there, a singer by the name of Sarah Vaughn was sitting there. <laughs> and she walks over to the piano and says, Oscar, he says, Sarah, he says, let's do a tune. So now it was Oscar. The band comes in and just Oscar and Sarah do three songs, and on two of them, Oscar sang duets with her. I never knew Oscar could sing, and he sounded a little like Nat Cole when he sang. And I'm sitting there, and and no tape recorder going, no film going, no nothing is going on, and here we are. What a a moment that was. It was one of the greatest nights for me ever. You know, that's incredible. It, it is incredible. It's that, a wonderful story. That's a great story. <laughs> you know, Don, I was going to ask you, so you've had obviously legendary sessions like that, legendary people at your club. Have you ever recorded any of these people? And yes, if so, we, we have. Is quite, it a, as a matter of fact, Danny Carey's band, Volto, did a, a live album there. We've done... Uh, Lee Greg did, Matheson. Greg Matheson. We've ah. got loads of albums with So them. some of these... These dates are available. Yes, that we're yeah, absolutely. At this, oh. Victor Fellman did an interesting date wow. there one time, a live album, where they brought down the whole Gold Star board. Really? And, and moved it to the back of the club, right right in, in the club. Like a mobile recording. Like a mobile recording wow, to do it. that's cool. Well, the, the RSC, who used to be down the street from the club, yes, Lankersham, yes. used yeah. to pull up in the alley. That's, that's right. Up. I that's think right. they're the ones that did the Matheson's thing. With, and it was... Uh, uh, Ape Senior. That's mm. right. Uh, Jeff. Right. Picaro on oh, drums. Oh, boy, and look at Carlton you. Larry Carlton on guitar. Yeah. That's wow. right. Greg on the B3. And the what boys. a great session that would it's, be. It's a, I have the Japanese import vinyl version of that album. Uh, it's really good. Oh, it's I'll a, lend it to you. Okay. A, and not I got to hear that. Vinny Kalayuta, we have him on about yeah. four or five different albums, yeah. too, you know. And, you know, Bob Bradshaw had a, a little recording system that he set up to do a number of those albums that was excellent. Yeah. And, you know, he just threw it together, and, and it really did good re- good recording. What's his name, the the guy that uh, owned the Ashgrove who died uh, not that long recently? Do you remember the Ashgrove down on, on Melrose? Oh, I remember. I mean, place. they recorded. Uh, they they got burned out like th- two or three times during the course of that, that club being in existence. Bad season. But they <laughs> used to they used to run uh, a tape on almost all the shows, and they had a huge uh, library yeah, of sure. all the shows. Uh, of the people that recorded there. I mean, who's who of the folk and blues world, you know, back back in the day in the 60s and 70s, you know. But uh, you should have been doing that all along, <laughs> well, man. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I have, you know, I, I, I like to pay for things like that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> I can't just, but our live streaming that we've been doing at the club, my yeah. son spent a fortune on that system that's in there. The sound quality is really excellent. Yeah. So... We're starting a concert series here as well, and having artists can now come in and broadcast live or sure. do a concert from these legendary historic rooms. You know, the whole problem I find with streaming is that many people that listen to the streaming, it's hard for them to pay for it for the simple reason they can go on YouTube and get a lot of this stuff free. 
Yeah. So if they have to fork out that money, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a hesitation. I think uh, there's got to be some, you know, I don't know where it's going to end. But we, we, the reason we put the live streaming in was before the COVID completely. Oh, really? It, was, it wasn't done for that. that. I thought oh, you did it. During no, COVID. it oh, wasn't. No, oh, I no. It was we, done for COVID we were going didn't... to do it to have to record to record concerts for the guys, so that we have the full. Our whole office, which was an office, is now it's like a little studio back there. Oh, I see. It's okay. all digitized. Everything, is, and then and then we have the the uh, the line that goes directly to. Uh, for streaming, mm-hmm. that unfortunately for us, it's right just outside is the main where the, the club is. Right is there. one of the main yeah. lines, yeah. Mm-hmm. so someone can tap in anytime. Yes, yeah. What's going on? Well, that's kind of what we had in mind, where you could be a fly on the wall for some of these sessions. And could you imagine sure. if there was cameras around when you sure. were doing these legendary sure. sessions? Sure, if the band wanted to show the microphones and obviously this historic backdrop. It's a, it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be really neat. Um, I just have one more question for you from sure. these uh, fan questions. Someone asked. Mr. Randy, this might sound bad, but Brian Wilson didn't technically write sheet music the best, did he? Did he understand music theory? He didn't have to. He his theory, everything he when he would tell you something, we would we would just do it because we knew that he knew where it was going to go. We didn't have to know. And if you have that that trust and honesty between the musician and the producer and songwriter, it, it's a wonderful feeling. And, and and he could change his mind. He he was like everybody else. If something didn't work, hey, that's not working. Let's do it this way. But he was always hearing vocalese. No matter what you were playing, he was hearing where the vocals were going to end up. Mm-hmm. He knew where he he had a direction he was working in, and and he had that that capacity to retain it, you know, and and correct himself, which is marvelous. You know, you you can't ask for anything better from a producer or for any. Because it gives you a, a way to go. Yeah. And uh, um, there's a lot of things that, you, hey, listen, you don't know where stuff is going to be when it's a brand new song, you've never heard it, you're not covering anything, and, and you're trying to be as invent- inventive as you can to help the song. Yeah. At least that's the way I always felt. You know, I, I, if I could add something to it, I would. <laughs> well, what what uh, block sessions would Brian work in? Have I'm sorry? To- what, how many hours a day would Brian work? Would you guys have a full day or four oh, that hours? That would be full day, weeks, months. Okay, so know, he wouldn't do go on, eight to know? twelve and then no, quit. No. He would go till no. It went to you know, it's how we felt, you know. Yeah, and 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 we were getting paid very well for doing that, so you didn't you didn't mind it from the pay aspect, and sometimes the object of you not knowing where it's going to go. When you did find out, was a joy because you know what you were working for. Sometimes you would think it's going to go this direction, and it didn't. It went where he wanted it. Yeah. That's Whereas amazing. you might have taken it in another place. He very rarely would change. You know. You've led quite the life. Uh, Five thousand, four thousand tracks you've played on. Yes. Also, you were nominated for a couple of Grammys at the Baked Potato, right? For yes, some live recordings. Yes, and I not only. <laughs> the year I got knighted uh, uh, for an album I did for Sheffield Lab, a directed disc album that Bill Schnee did. Yeah. And we went up against for Best Sound. Wow. And guess who we went up against? Bill Spector? No, The Wall, Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <you're> kidding. <laughs> guess who won? <laughs> yeah, that's my little six piece man. Best Sound album, and then it goes up against Pink Floyd and The Wall. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good category. <laughs> 
I, I always wanted to, to, to see them give an award for best old artist, not new artist. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Oh, Jesus. Uh, and the music scoring as well, obviously, uh, for film and TV and jingles sure. and just so much work. What would you like your legacy to be uh, at the end of the day? <laughs> That's funny. I, I have one, one great legacy that I wish would happen, and it probably has, but I don't know about it. I have been asked to sound like everybody you can imagine playing piano. I would love some piano player to call me and say, they asked me to play like you today, Don. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I love it. Phil, final questions? I'm good. Mr. Camerata? Well, it's so nice to see you again, Don. Well, it's great to see you too. It's been a while, and you've been part of this facility and this studio for since I was a little kid. So. Well, I thank I thank your dad so much. You know, I, I we all miss him. You know, he he was such a a good piece of my heart. That's for sure. Yeah. It's I just remembered something. If we still have time, yeah, of we course. did an album here that he produced with a guy by the name of Billy Storm. Billy Storm, okay. a great great singer. But your dad had an a concept. We did one ha half of an album with one song in about five different styles. Really? With this guy, yeah, with Billy Storm. And I don't know, whatever happened, it did get released. It wasn't a Disney record, though. I'm sorry? It wasn't a Disney record. No, 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 no. I, it did get released, and, and I never knew what happened. And he, I heard that he was working at Universal, uh, but not as a singer. I didn't know what he was doing up there, you know, but... Uh, um, he sat in with us a couple of times at the baked potato in in the mid seventies. Oh, so he came down to the club. Yeah, yeah. Billy Storm. And, uh, and, and then it, <laughs> this guy had a great voice, though. Holy really? moly! Yeah, that doesn't ring a bell, but I'll I'll look him up. Yeah, pretty wild. Yeah, Billy Storm, cool name too. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, I have a question. Go ahead. Yeah. What what year did you open up the baked potato? Nineteen seventy. Seventy. Wow. November seventeenth. This okay. past, past New Year's Eve was the first time that I didn't play New Year's Eve. I didn't realize it had been there that 50, long. Yeah, same over location. 50 years. Same location. On and then we had three of them. We had one in Pasadena and one in Hollywood. Yeah, I, I remember the one right down the down street, street here. here. Yeah. Yeah. Next to Morgan Camera. That's right. That was Justin's play. You know, he yeah. designed all... Play. He's also an architect, yeah. besides being one Your hell son. of a singer and actor, you yeah. know. Oh. And uh, um, so... The, the club in Pasadena, I don't know if you guys ever went to that one. Mm -hmm. That was the perfect club, 150 seats to 170 seats. And the people in Pasadena just did not want to pay for a door charge. It was yeah. like really? root canal without Novocaine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. And it was I a, think it's always been kind of a hard place to, uh, to make a, a successful music venue. I think the... The Rose, which was the kind of the Canyon Club, yeah, Canyon. Pasadena, was yeah, done yeah, okay yeah. there, but uh, now they're not, obviously. But yeah. uh, it's always been a, a the the Ice House is the only place that's ever survived there guess, for any yeah. period of time. Is that so. a comedy club? It no? was, but it was also a music club too. Okay, yeah, but it was a combination of they had music acts and comedy. But it's been there for a long time. But that's the only place that's really lasted there any you know any there was, significant period. There of time. was so many clubs. There was there was the, the La Vallee, You know uh, yeah. that had a, a lot of jazz. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was it? The place on Lancashire. Uh, um, starts with a D. Oh, I forget now. It was there forever. When we opened up, that was our competition. 
Dante's? Dante's. Dante's. Yeah, Dante's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, Now, that, that was, a, you know, Dante's yeah. was there a long time. I could time. never get a seat there either. And the musicians, <laughs> musicians would sign tabs there. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. <laughs> that was it. That was <laughs> it. Never got paid. Jack Darty's big band on that right. tiny that's stage right. that's there right. with Jeff and Jim Keltner. <laughs> that's then right. The, second, then the following year, it was Jeff and Jim Gordon. Gordon, yeah. Joe Osborne or Max Bennett and uh, Larry I, I, and Dean and, yeah. Good old Jim Gordon. I'd like to see them on your stage. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. Well, see, John DeVerse's big band when he played. That, and that's such a great band. Man, that, you know, he's got the best players. John DeVerse is the head of the music department at University of Miami now, you know. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's amazing. Do you ever Pretty. have a, a band play in there that was so big that you, uh, you had to, uh, you <laughs> couldn't get very many? Uh, they outnumbered the audience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what's her name? Uh, remember her name she's married to the to the lead singer of uh that australian band um god i can't remember oh yeah she still plays there what's cecilia, her name? cecilia noel cecilia noel right i um, love her is, she is so uh, cool she is she's one of the nicest people you know she's she's got troubles you know is tristan bowden still play drums for her no they were married they got oh. divorced ah uh -huh. okay <laughs> she used to say Oh, my Trissy, he's on the road. I miss his pee-pee so much. Cecilia, she's priceless. And besides being a great singer yeah. and an entertainer, you know, and she puts everything into it. And I, I think she has some, some, something, an illness that she has that right. just exhausts her, so she can't do more than... But she had a huge band. Oh, yeah. And, and they and, used to... And they, the singers. Yeah. And, and, and they used to play that club. That's right. And they think, were, walk up and down. How does she play there and don't get anybody in there as an audience? Now listen, it, it's, <laughs> it's great. It was, she's, and she's so delightful. Yeah. I love her. She's well, a I think they were divorced and Tris was still, still playing, playing in the band and, and, with her because she's married to the guy from a Minute Work. Anybody that's right. Remember that What's his name? Band? Yeah, sure. it is the guy from. But me. I can't remember his name. These the, the Bay. Uh, Colin, Colin Bay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. right. Colin. He's yeah, a nice yeah. guy too. Oh, really yeah. nice guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's it's pretty amazing since 1970. Yeah, last New great. Year's Eve because of the COVID, we couldn't, I, yeah. we didn't have a New Year's Eve. Were you the first artist and band to play in there too? Yeah, we used to play there five or six nights a week, and the seventh night for three years in a row, Mike Melvoin played there with a different rhythm section. Wendy's father. Yeah, Wendy's father. Wow. Yeah. Mike was a great piano player, great yeah. accompanist, and great writer. Great yeah. writer. And became he was one of the first presidents of uh, Naris yeah, too, you know. Yeah. Early, what a thankless job that was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he well, was in the Smashing Pumpkins too, yeah, and yes. actually passed away. Uh, was Jonathan that? Melvoin. Oh yeah. yes, yeah. Um, he was a keyboard player. As yes, well. um, that whole family is very, very talented. Yeah, Mike. Mike. When I re I remember when he first came out, you know, and. Uh, he went, I heard him, he was another guy subbed for me at Sherry's, and I said, wait a second, this guy's going to be in the studios, and, and sure enough, he went right in. And Mike is, I loved him, really talented guy, one of my favorite piano players in, in this town, anyway. You know, and Larry Nechdel gets overlooked by somebody, what a marvelous musician he was. Besides being a great pianist, he was an equally great bass player, and he could play the shit out of harmonica. I mean, he was, and, and great writer. He was part of the group Bread. Yeah. 
David Gates. And he's always credited as being the bass player Player. in that. And I I didn't know that because I'd always seen him get credit as a pianist. Piano player. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Oh, he's a bass player too, huh? Okay. And you know, there's a perfect example, as far as I'm concerned, where if you can control egos, you can live forever. But once the egos start to take over, the beginning of the end, and then it's the end. And, And they just... You know, that's what happens. With so bread could have been going on musically, they were as good as anything that ever happened, because of the musicianship in that band. David Gates was marvelous. Larry Nectar was marvelous. You know, yeah. it could have gone on forever, but but not. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. I remember Phil Spector saying to the Righteous Brothers, to Bill and to Bobby Bobby Hatfield and 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 Bill, why don't you sing one, and you sing one solo. And I sat. I was at the meeting, just like we're all sitting here. And I said to myself, "Don't do that." And sure enough, that was the beginning. After that, they got. They both got hits on that album, you know. Uh, and Bill Medley, you know, went on and on. And and Bobby unfortunately passed away. They finally had gotten back together towards the end. But boy, just enough egos, enough things take over. Mm-hmm. To, to mean something like that, you and it, it's sad. It's a sad connotation on the, the whole, the lifestyles and the music styles, you know. Incredible. But it happens over and over again with yeah. different bands, you know. Unfortunately. Well, Neil Young, we did Neil Young here. You this did that as we well? Did, uh, we did that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The yeah. last album that came out as, as the, uh, what's the band? Uh, Buffalo Springfield. Buffalo, Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. Jim Messina was on that too. Yeah, yeah. He well, played with you on that one? Yeah, well, I I played on the original Buffalo Springfield stuff. Yeah. And then when, when Neil Young left and then it came back, he wanted to do a solo album. Uh-huh. And we did it here with Jack Nitchie. Was yeah, that first, Sunset Sound? For his first record. Yeah. Yeah. It's just called Neil Young. Yeah. What is it? Just called Neil Young. Old Laughing Lady and... Uh, there's a the, thing, there's a blues number in there. Yeah. That goes on at the end. It's a blues piano solo mm-hmm. that goes on forever, and I kept saying, "Are they ever going to tell stop. me to stop?" You know, and I go, "Okay, another chorus, another chorus." So that's right you here. playing. That's me playing uh-huh. right here, right here. Got it. On the Incredible. back piano? No, I think it was on uh, tack. No, I think that was on a Fender Rhodes on that oh, on that one. Okay. I think it was a Rhodes that that was here that we brought in. He wanted to have roads on it. You know who I did hear that was a really great, fun album? Paul Butterfield, Blues Band. Oh, really? Okay. Whoa, what an album. Which, which album? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But, I mean... The original Butterfield Blues no, Band? No, 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 no. The this Better is, Days this Band. Is, this is the later on. Okay. We did an album here, a yeah. full album. His later band was called the Better Days Band. Amos Garrett know. was. I, I wouldn't know, and but Jeff I know it, it, was in it. He came in and played with us one night at Sherry's. Yeah. And we did a blues for 45 minutes. I mean, oh, it man. was he just was an incredible. Incredible harmonica. harmonica. Yeah. He could, but you know, you know what was so incredible about him? Besides being a great, the sound he got, he, the emotion he got. Yeah. I mean, he was, when he played those funky blues things, man, it was all heart, all heart. I loved yeah. it, man. I just loved the way he played. Pretty amazing. Did you, you, work, you got me going now. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, Robbie Krieger said that the, the Butterfield Blues Band was a big inspiration for his guitar playing. Yeah, on, sure. All the door stuff. Did you sure. ever play with Robbie Krieger? No, I never Anything? did. Yeah. I, I appreciate him, though, really yeah. a lot. 
There's so many, you know, you, you hear guys play. Like in the beginning, I didn't care for Joe Bonamassa in the beginning. And then he grew on me and grew on me and grew on me. And he's, he's, he's got a definite niche to reach an audience that hasn't never been reached before. And I give him a shitload of credit for that because he's drawn people into a, a blues feeling that they would never probably would have even gotten near if not for him, you know. John and Mayer as well. And know, he, he's and crossed he, over in so he's many. An, and he's an entertainer. He does very well. Who's one? Of, I'm from Chicago. Who's yeah. one of your favorite blues artists? Well, there's a, a kid that plays guitar there. His name is Chris Winters. You probably never heard of him. Oh. He is frightening. He was in my band for a year and moved back to Chicago. Wow. I'm telling you, this guy is scary. <laughs> he's amazing. Yeah. Amazing guitar player. Play your club? And he played. He played with my club for a year. Uh, he's on one of my albums, as a matter of fact. And then there's a, a bass player that's in Chicago now, Al Criado. Al's been back there for years and does loads of stuff. But uh, when in Chicago, I had a gig at, at a place called the Saharan, which is on Mannheim Road, mm -hmm. out near O'Hare Field. Yep. And it was one of the most beautiful... It was originally owned by Gene Autry and got bought out by a guy by the name of Manny Scarlese, or, hmm. who was representative of Guess Who in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and he heard me play at a little club, and he brought my trio back there and had a nine-foot Steinway Grand in the most elegant room his wife designed. And every night, we'd play in there for about 20 people. And right, private? French, French chef. And wow. we'd end up dining with the people and to come back and playing. And that was it. He had a lounge with that had had the Vegas-style lounge entertainment. And he had a main showroom. Oh, listen to this. I had meet, I meet Hal Blaine at Gold Star on the first date. And then we go to I go to Chicago for, for this date. And Patty Page is there in the main showroom, and I'm walking down the hall, and here comes Hal walking this way, and we both, Hal? He's Don? I said, yeah, you know, because we had only met on that day. He was with Patty Page a week later, and I was there with my trio, the same hotel in Chicago, and we were fr we became friends and stayed friends ever wow, since then. incredible. That's great. We're pretty well. But that, that hotel was unbelievable. Unbelievable. The one of the most elegant rooms you have ever seen for dining in theater. And it was on Mannheim out by O'Hare yeah, Airport? by O'Hare Airport. And guess what? We weren't allowed to stay in the hotel. What? Was he got us a, musicians? He got, he got, he got <laughs> us a, an apartment. Oh, okay. Right in the middle of where all the airline stewardesses stayed at O'Hare Airfield. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty wild. Pretty That's wild. Great. Can uh, you know you bought that piano in the ISO booth over there? Could we entice you to play a little bit before you leave today? Sure, amazing. I think from all of us, we want to say thank you for coming in here. This is my pleasure. Such a special yeah. opportunity to have someone of your sure. stature and legend and stories, oh, and just this is one of my favorite places. Are you kidding? I couldn't do it at Gold Star because it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> strip mall now. Oh yeah, isn't that terrible? Yeah, it's so yeah. terrible. What happened with the board in Gold Star and? I don't know. They, I remember when they were closing it down, they were oh. selling off all the equipment. Not sure where it went. But, well, you know, uh, when Stan yeah. passed away, uh, the only one, Dave is, Dave is still alive. Yeah. But Stan Gold uh, passed. I, I always felt comfortable recording here because it was a warm, there was a warmth there. And, and uh, 
Can you believe it's still here? I mean, 61, 62 years now, Sunset Sound. You can still come in here and record music. Sure, and sure. It's incredible. You know what I miss here is the, um, uh, you know, seeing all this, the uh, studio musicians come in and work on all the sessions. I know. That was such a, a normal thing for decades. And now it's completely well, gone. You must remember the musicianship got better, though. Well, that's a lo- true. A, a lot of these guys can play a lot better. And uh, Billy Henshey is a good friend of mine. I did his show a couple of weeks ago. Oh, okay. From Dino, Desi, and yeah, Billy. Dino, you know, Desi, and Billy. You know, and and he's a sweetheart. Those kids, they were babies. They yeah, couldn't they couldn't play, play right? They yeah. couldn't play, you know. No. But they got hits. They got three or four big yeah. records. You know? oh, they did. A lot of a lot of the early Buffalo Springfield stuff. They were terrible, you know. But they they uh, they weren't the best players, you know. They grew into be. But they were getting the monkeys. They couldn't play worth shit, you know. They, and they'll tell you that. They right. What do you feel about playing some "Oh Yeah" by Don Randy? Oh yeah. Yeah. You remember that track? I do remember "Oh Yeah." All right. You how know what? You, how did you know about that song? I'm a. I hang around these guys all day, so well, I mean, it just rubs you know, off. You know why I, we did that? That has a that has singing on it. That was the first record I did that had singers on it. They really? Went, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. It's catchy. It's yeah, but it was kind of a, blue, a bluesy funk thing, sure. you know. But the thing I was going to play was Mexican Pearls. That's my favorite. That's, well, that's <laughs> even more appropriate. That can trump my decision. Yeah. Well, thank you, but Don Randy, so much for coming you, on. This will be available at sunsetsound.com. Go on and buy a T-shirt on our merch department, support independent studios. And you have a great book as well, correct? Yes. You've Heard These Hands. You've Heard These Hands by Don Randy. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much. This and has go been to the fun. club. Yes, it's going to be back baked, open. The Baked Potato. We're there the 17th. Yep. <laughs> April 17th, the Baked Potato on Lancashire. No, on Coenga. On Coenga. 3787. Yeah. 3787. You're back. And the best potatoes in the country. <laughs> you can get lobster on your potato. You can get anything. That's the only one you can get. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Okay. All right. Thank, Thank you, you Don.